This is the CMS Colloquium Podcast, produced by the Comparative Media Studies Program at MIT. For more information about Comparative Media Studies or on the Colloquium series, visit us online at cms.mit.edu. Today's colloquium guest is Alan Moore, who is the CEO of the engagement marketing company SMLXL and the co-author of Communities Dominate Brands. Uh, Moore is a big thinker who asks big questions in the branding space. I met him through the blog, and we've since started up a correspondence, and I think what he has to say will be of great interest to the CMS community at large. His topic is called Old World, New World, how communities, culture, connectivity, and commerce are changing how we create culture, media, education, and politics. As I said, he's a big thinker. Can we turn the lights down a little bit? Is that possible? Just sort of, um... John Stuart Mill, writing on liberty in 1859, said that man is not a, a model to be built like a machine and set to do the work exactly prescribed to it but more like a tree that should be allowed to grow and develop on all sides that makes it, that depends to make it a living thing. And I've got a, a guy who's a, I'm a big fan of called Bill Bailey. He's a comedian. And um, Bill Bailey was talking about Stephen Hawking's um, A Brief History of Time. And apparently in, in, the, in the book, um, uh, Stephen Hawking says that the universe can be three shapes. He says it can be long and thin, like a piece of tacklatelli. He said it can be round like a marble, or it can be saddle-shaped. At which point he says, saddle-shaped? Why did he just say that the universe is a saddle strapped to the back of a giant donkey, which is being led up and down a giant intergalactic beach by God? He said it was much easier pre-Christopher Columbus times when you could just go and say, I'll have a ticket to the edge and back. (laughs) And I think that what's interesting in this is that from where we've come from, um, from where I've come from, our familiar analog world was very to the edge and back. We knew where the edge was and we knew how to get back. Okay? Um, in today's media converged world, we don't know where the edge is. We don't know actually whether our universe is saddle shaped or not. And we are in a complete state of flux, I think, in terms of culture, in terms of our politics particularly in terms of our media and how we create businesses. And this is kind of creating a massive clashing of gears for a lot of people. There's some of us, like Henry and I, who feel that we get it and we understand it. Um, I think there are other people out there that do, and there are other people that really just want to put their heads in the sand and pretend it doesn't happen. But the reality is, is that the pace of progress is relentless and it's metronomic. And we've got to try and understand that the best we can. When we wrote our book... um, I wondered whether initially whether we'd gone too far. There's a sort of, you know, there's one thing sort of, you know, pioneering and leading the charge. There's another one actually about really whether you've just taken too many drugs and, uh, you know, you kind of believe your own uh, theories way too much. But The Economist wrote an article on April the 5th, 2005, which is about a month after our book came out. And they said there are many companies out there that seem to be unaware of the revolutionary implications of the newly empowered consumer. Those people that do not serve those consumers in new ways will not survive. And in fact, actually, there's a guy at MIT from the Sloan School of Business called Glenn Urban, and he said that the push 
uh, that marketing is changing from the push marketing strategies that suited us so well over the last 50 years of mass consumption to trust-based strategies that are very necessary in a time of information empowerment. And I don't think I can stress to you enough this whole issue around trust. The uh, World Economic Forum, <coughs> I think it's the World Economic Forum, they've been doing a survey on trust in about 16 countries since 2001. And what they've discovered is, is that trust at its lowest levels for the UN, for all governments and major businesses since that tracking began. And when we live in a world of sort of hyper-connectivity um, and connectivity with our friends and colleagues, it will be to those people that we will be turning to as voices of trust and authority. Um, we don't have it in the UK, I don't think, but in America you have a thing called VNRs, video news reports, which are in fact reports created by politicians and organisations of various forms that actually want to get their media message out within a news context. These are taken by hungry news organisations and presented to the audience or the viewer as actually de facto news reporting, when in fact there's no such thing as the case. So trust is a really important uh, issue. And in fact, uh, I think that we've become very sophisticated as consumers, um, and I think that the value of marketing is changing. And in fact, in the UK, we can see that how that value is changing because there are five major media companies, one of which is ITV. I can't think what the comparison would be for you guys, but it was the first uh, major commercial um, uh, TV station uh, in the UK. It once said they had a license to print money, um, and it was immensely arrogant. Um, there is Channel 4, which for the first time, which is another um, media company, has uh, said for the first time in 20 years that it will go into the red as advertising spend starts to slide away from these organisations. And there's massive conversations going on inside these uh, companies about who they are and what they are. But we see a drop between minus 9 to minus 30 percentage points in their uh, share value um, over the first six months of last year. And the thing is, is that marketeers want us, in a traditional sense, just to consume as much as they think we should be consuming to be pushed at us. And we're in reality saying, no, we don't want that anymore. And Alan Mitchell, who's an author who wrote a great book called Right Side Up, said if marketing was a thing in its own right, would anyone want to buy it? And the answer is no, unless apparently if it's Italian ice cream. <clears throat> and also what we see is, is that um, the way that sort of digital networks um, are creating new economic opportunities are sweeping aside uh, the blockbuster economics of the mass media. It's not that the mass media won't exist, but what we're seeing is, is that um, small companies are able to come together. In fact, we were just talking about it before we started this, about niche mass communities of interest, which actually from, a global, from, from day one can be a global business model, a global audience, um, which aren't tied by territory or by geography. And what it means is that the cost of creation and the cost of distribution have fallen through the floor. It means that if I can find an audience of 2 million people or 3 million people on a global basis, I have a viable business model from day one. I don't have to think about geography and territory anymore as being part of my business model per se. And we live in a poor world. And I think that the sort of pressure that that puts on traditional 
businesses and their organisational structures is stressing companies in really interesting ways. The architecture of a poor organisation offers opportunities to create new market opportunities, to think about how the inside of that corporation or organisation will be structured. And I think that traditional notions of what an organisation is and how it functions is the equivalent of the silent movies to the 21st century. Um, there's a great example now of, uh, in fact, there's a guy called Don Tapscott who's written a book called Wikinomics, which if you haven't read it, I suggest you do because I think it's a really interesting book. And it tells a story about uh, a guy who had inherited his uh, father's gold mining uh, company somewhere in the U.S., and all these uh, geographers, ge geologists have told him that, um, in fact, in about sort of 10 years' time, the mine would be shut down because there was no seams of gold left. And he asked them to go away and look at all their maps and charts, and they said, no, no, there's no gold left. So he couldn't believe this, and he actually said, right, what I'm going to do is I'm going to offer this up to the community of people that might be interested in this. And so on their website, they had a call for people who had the skills and the capability to work either individually or as collective groups of people to come together and to look at all the maps and all the information. So he took all this data, which up until that point had been kind of heavily protected, it was the most secretive thing they had, and published it publicly for people to use. People that could help them find the gold and the material will obviously would be handsomely rewarded. That community of people that came together to combine their collective knowledge to solve that problem has kept that company going probably for another 150 years. That's the difference of being a pull organisation rather than a push organisation. And I would argue, actually, in many ways, that companies are from Mars and customers are from Venus as a consequence of those sort of ways of thinking of the old way of command and control. And Mars is having a bit of a rough time of it at the moment because Venus feels that he can't give her what she wants which is tangible support in the daily life she chooses to live. She wants to be free from the stress, rage and injustice of all her commercial transactions. And now we were a cup of coffee the other morning reading the Financial Times. Venus mused that isn't it bizarre when consumption is such an important part of all our economies and when every one of us is a consumer that our consumption experiences will be largely adversarial. Now, I flew from Louisville yesterday to Boston um, and uh, <coughs> via Philadelphia, and I had my bags lost. And they didn't arrive until a couple of hours before I presented today, so I'm rather glad that I'm in a clean shirt and I'm <laughs> able to uh, have a shave and things rather than be standing here in dirty jeans. But it was incredible the conversations I was having with these people. I had to fit into US Airways' system of solving my problem, not solving my problem. And in fact, I wrote an open letter to the CEO of US Airways this morning saying to him that I thought that, you know, if he was going to stand up in front of the people that he thought it was important that he presented to, would he be happy to stand up there in a dirty shirt and dirty jeans? <laughs> Did it help you get your back? Well, they turned up just after I posted it, actually. But uh, I, was, I, was, I was all set. I was all set to call him. I was all set to call him. So... Um, Back to the storming of the, uh, the Bastille. And the other thing that I want to say is, is that once you storm the Bastille, you don't go back to your day job. And your day job in this instance is the consumer that is an uninformed, unconnected, passive person that will consume whatever's been put in front of them. Um, it's been described as the end of information feudalism, 
and it's been described as the uh, demise of the read-only culture. Um, It's been described as an evolving act of liberation, and Business Week described it as the biggest thing since the Industrial Revolution. So Darwin has kind of rudely arrived in our kind of media uh, ecology. And, of course, it was Darwin which said that it's not the strongest or the most intelligent that survive, but the most adaptive to change. But there was something also that Darwin sort of mused about, and it was about thinking about the peacock with its funny little legs and these sort of strange wings. Why was it that the peacock somehow managed to survive? Every year the peahen would look at the peacock and think, well, you know, I'll try you for another year, see how you go, because you still seem to be living. Well, the word that he realised was really important about the peacock was attraction. The peacock was attractive to the peahen. And as a consequence of that, I would argue that the nation of brands and also, I would say, organisations have to be life-enabling, life-simplifying or navigational. They're not the only three, but rather than have a list of 12, these are the three that I keep coming back to and thinking, these have some real value to me. These help my life in all sorts of ways. And it's where we start to see really interesting things happening, where people start to think about their propositions as being more service-orientated. I've got a friend of mine, John Grant, and he said that image advertising is the junk mail of the 21st century. I think we've sort of gone beyond this idea of image as desire. And in fact, again, in our conversations just before I started talking today, um, we were talking about this whole notion that actually the, the things that seem really sexy in today's world is technology. You know, do I have the latest iPod player, my laptop? You know, it's the technology things which seem actually far more interesting to us than our Levi's jeans, or whatever brand that they are, because they're not very successful today. And then I want to talk about identity, because I think actually that this is really, really important. Um, Bottom right-hand corner, um, community is the oldest idea in the book. It is the start of civilization. Um, Human beings realized that if if we collaborated together, we had a better chance of surviving than if we actually kind of hung out in the woods on our own. Um, And what that meant was, though, for many millennia, was that actually our identities were created and formed by external forces. Even when we move into the bottom left-hand corner of the nuclear family, in many ways, we are still shaped by our birthright, by our religion, where we come from, um, by the kind of government of the day, etc., etc. Powerful institutions that were shaping the way that we were behaving in society. If you think about it, even in the 1950s, the idea of actually having a child out of wedlock, being gay, you know, all these things, actually, society was putting massive pressure on you. Look at George Bush wanting to repeal the gay marriage laws up in San Francisco. You know, people still don't like this idea. But the reality is is that as economies become more affluent and more stable, the values of society and the individuals within them start to change. So we get to the self. In the 50s, really, it starts, and then into the 60s, we start to decouple from these organisations, and we start for the first time to question the self. Let's think about it, the Paris riots of 1968, the explosion of uh, creativity in music and in art, the pop, pop culture, 
think what Warhol did with his works is explode the myths about what art is and was in a contemporary sense. Um, think about the sort of civil rights movement um, in this country or the anti-Vietnam demonstrations. Let's think about Woodstock. As a macro level, what we saw is, is people in affluent societies starting to decouple from these existing organisations. But what happens when we get to a postmodern world is we have the ability to have many selves. Um, and this is actually called psychological self-determination, the ability to be able to exert control over the things that mean the most to me. Um, and this is very, very important because we still need an identity. We still need to belong. But the reality is now that we don't have these external forces shaping us. And although people see that as a paradox, the reality is we are a we species. Human beings have a deeply innate need to want to connect and communicate. It's why things like MySpace and YouTube are happening. You know, it's not the technology. And so, although some of us in this room may be very interested in how we monetize all of this, the reality is, is that we have to understand the fundamental truth that what technology is revealing is that we are a deeply collaborative and social species. And that truth changes everything. So, psychological self-determination is the desire and the need to exert control over the things that mean the most to me. These people shun traditional organisations and traditional notions of authority. They demand a high quality of participation and control over the things that they, they want to have in their lives, and they will seek them out. They have the skills to um, lead, discuss, and um, confer with each other, and they're not very good foot soldiers. But there's something else which is a darker side to all of this, and unfortunately I only got this on an email just before I turned up, um, and so I'm going to read it out to you. But I've got a friend of mine who's a psychologist uh, in Cambridge in the UK, because that's where I live, and um, I was talking to her about our book and these issues about identity, and this is what she put on the email to me. Until postmodern times, we dealt with problems that had their origins in relation to the other or the outside in a concrete way, and in, in imagination problems tended to come from people with psychosis or personality disorders. We are still getting those problems, but what has changed for some people are the triggers to illness, in so much as people who do not have a strong inner sense of self tend to feel more fragmented more easily, and the idea of self-construction is very threatening to these types of people. They seem to need more direct human contact to help them to define themselves, and years ago would have been defined and lived within the confines of their families, villages, social classes or friends, with daily personal interaction reinforcing that. So, for instance, we see a lot of phobias and depressions, particularly problems such as social phobia, that are linked to this fearlessness of how to be in the world and whether one is acceptable or not. Although the symptoms still fit into the categories, the stories that are connected to how they came to be this way are to do with the lack of knowing of how to operate in the, in the world, poor problem-solving problem skills, fearfulness or even mild risk-taking, and an inability to form healthy relationships due to suspiciousness. In psychological terms, it is a schizotypical form of relating to the world and the problems that I work with are often connected to that. One of the problems of self-construction through media for these people is that they do not have the skills to take advantage of the opportunities presented and become a sort of ghost population that is difficult to motivate and fearful of engaging. 
They often end up living vicariously through media-constructed images in imagination and become very depressed when the reality fails to match. An unimportant but widespread example of that is the middle-aged man with a paunch who only ever wears a Chelsea football strip. That's a football team in the UK, in case you don't know. Because in his head he is that footballer. Wherever he focuses to confront that reality of his true condition, which he has to do several times on a daily basis, it makes him feel just a little bit worse. The other outcome is an overdeveloped sense of entitlement, far beyond the person's natural skill and ability, and linked to, if I can imagine it, and I want it, it must be. People who have the social and intellectual skills to truly define themselves are in a good position. The rest are often very noisy ghosts in a big machine. And I just sort of wanted to share that with you as sort of these issues of identity um, and are actually very, very important in a postmodern world that we live in. So back to this idea about command and control and the way that sort of structures are organised. We're resisting traditional notions of um, authority and organisations. I tell lots of brands today or businesses that you have to give up control to gain control. The way that you have a control in today's world is to be a better facilitator. The better you can facilitate things, the more that you will thrive and survive in today's world. Um, And... You know, two really good examples of that, I think, that companies that didn't get it was Sony BMG, who released, released their kind of uh, rootkit thing on 24 million CDs. So basically, I'd buy a CD from Sony, I'd put it in my uh, laptop, and it was actually starting to download lots of software onto my computer so it could spy on me. And it could then tell other people what I was doing. If I wanted to get that off my computer, quite often it would crash my hard drive. So the Electronic Frontier Foundation had brought a, 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 a case um, against them. I mean, I think that, and that's a very, very good example of how not to do it in today's world. And this idea of control is also very important, I think, within a political sense. Back in 2005, um, Paris erupted in riots. Um, France was starting to reap uh, what it sowed in terms of its colonial past, as we do in England quite often as well. Um, you can't sort of take a, a population, stick them on one side of Paris in extremely poor housing, um, make their lives miserable, poverty-stricken, deny them all the access to all the other things that normal French people do, and expect them to enjoy it. And, of course, the whole of uh, you know, the immigrant population eventually rose up and exploded. Um, Sarkozy, who was then the interior minister, calling these people rabble probably didn't really help matters very much. Um, But the point here is is that what they tried to do was was to limit what they thought was the amount of imagery that was being sent out um, on websites, on news reports, whatever, because they didn't want people to see the scale of what was happening. On the other hand, they were also fearful of the far right, of Jean-Marie Le Pen um, and his cohorts in terms of taking advantage of the fact because they were very anti-immigration. But the reality is is that those images were already out there. We can't control the media in the way that we used to. Um, And it's a very dangerous thing to think that we do. Now, um, the guy on the left is uh, David Cameron. He's the leader of the opposition party in the United Kingdom. So he sits in the House of Commons opposite Tony Blair and they trade insults with each other, basically, is kind of what happens. Um, And... um, this image is actually very interesting because in England, what we call the guy with the singer, we call him a hoodie. And um, 
what Blair said, uh, what Cameron said was, is actually we shouldn't be punishing these people, we should be hugging them. So the headline was, Hug a Hoodie. <laughs> so there's an irony in this photograph in, in, in many ways. But the point is, is that youth have disengaged with politics. Um, and the they sort of see no reason why they should be voting. But I think there's also something much deeper here, because actually, why are they disengaging? We need people to engage with political discourse. We're not saying that everyone should be up there 12 hours a day debating about everything that happens. But to have a healthy de democratic process in society, we have to be aware and feel engaged in lots and lots of ways. And what worries me is, is that there are perhaps increasing numbers of people uh, which feel that they have no role to play in politics. Um, again, with Henry, we were discussing uh, uh, the, this afternoon is the, the fact that Pop Idol in the US, the second Pop Idol, was the second, the second one was the biggest texting event in the world at that time. But the amazing thing was that 30% of those people had never sent a text message before. How do you engage people? And it's really, really important. So we have to think about, as politicians or within society, how these things are going to affect us. Now, the big word that comes out of that is context. Without context, there can be no meaning. So you're looking at this picture, and you know it's a picture of a woman. Can anyone tell me any more about this picture? OK. So... This woman, uh, this is a very famous piece of work, actually. This woman, her name is Myra Hindley. And in the middle 60s in England, her and her partner took young children, abducted them, they tortured them, they sexually abused them, raped them, and then they killed them, and then they dumped their bodies. This woman is the closest thing to Satan that we have in our country. It was something that even had grown men crying in the courtroom as they listened to a tape recording of a little girl pleading to be, let allowed, to, 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 to be allowed to live. Now, that's a big story. What makes this piece of work so powerful is, is that Myra's face is made up of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of small children's hands. That picture now has meaning because it's got context. Um, so sort of great was that meaning for many people in the UK as it was hanging in a major gallery that it was uh, attacked with all sorts of um, objects and eggs and whatever. So in the end, it had to be put behind protective glass. But without the context, there is no meaning. If politics has no context for people, it can have no meaning. Therefore, they cannot engage. And this is another one. Um, uh, this is a, a, an African-American lady um, whose name escapes me now. I actually made some notes, and, uh, of course, I picked up the wrong notebook as I, I <laughs> left my hotel room today. But this is a, this is a, a triptych um, by a guy called uh, uh, Carrie Mae Weems, I think. Um, and on the, on the surface, what we see is, is that the tragedy of... Um, the African-Americans, uh, you know, here they are um, uh, as a sort of before picture, and here they are as an after picture. I think they're sorry? Native Americans. Native Americans, yeah, sorry. Um, sorry, yes. We're all African but actually the point is, is that the guy that set up uh, the school was um, an a ex, um, 
union general who thought that, in fact, what he was doing was bringing these people to a better life. He was civilising these people. And the real story about this person's work is the tragedy of history, that, in fact, they all suffer as a consequence of their own context of that time. And so the imagery actually has a far more multi-layered, complex uh, sort of issues around it rather than a before and after with a white guy stuck in the middle. So again, it comes back to context. And so I wondered whether actually Barack Obama sort of understood whether he has to kind of engage the debate uh, with people in completely different ways. The numbers are there, are the number of members, when I sort of read the Washington Post article of the number of people that were members on his Facebook site, whereas they did some research and found that the number of members on Hillary's was 3,251. Now, you know, I'm no expert on, on, uh, on American politics, but what I do think is, is that, you know, this is a really interesting way of thinking about how do we recontextualise um, politics? How can we find a way to get people to feel that they have an involvement and an engagement from a grassroots level? Because if you belong, then you're far more likely to put your physical, emotional and intellectual efforts into things. So on Barrack's, um, on, on his page here, I think what's really interesting is, is that you can create your own profile, um, find supporters near you, plan and around events, network with your friends, become a fundraiser, write your own blog. There's all sorts of ways where you can kind of start to co-create the process in a way which perhaps you normally wouldn't have been able to have done before. Um, and if I mention the word folk culture to people, um, you've probably got an idea that um, these are sort of slightly older men uh, and women with very big sort of uh, knitted jumpers on um, singing sort of strange songs. But the reality is, is that folk culture is something that is an important part of all and every culture's lives in all sorts of ways. It's just that the mass media like to think that it doesn't play a role anymore. Um, and the reason why I put Woody Guthrie up there is because, in many ways, you know, he was one of the last people that benefited from a mass media, but he was singing about a very, very different type of world. Um, and I kind of had this thought the other day when I was looking at YouTube, and there had been an article about sort of all the videos on, on YouTube of, um, you know, all the fighting that's going on in Iraq at the moment, um, and I went to have a look. And so you've got kind of, you know, five-minute videos of, um, you know, lots of killing and, and whatever with tracks like Die, Motherfucker, Die to it. There are other ones which are, um, you know, this is a soldier um, giving a kind of tribute to all his colleagues uh, that have fallen in battle, um, which are absolutely kind of, you know, will, will make you want to cry. Um, and I thought this is what YouTube is about in a way, in a very raw way. This is about people telling their stories. We need folk culture to kind of give context for the lives that we lead, to create some sort of narrative and points of understanding of where we were. And I'm not saying that YouTube is the sort of fine end of folk culture, but I think it's romancing the technology. What will happen in five years' time when people become far more sophisticated in using the technology that they've got? So, for example, if you look at Al Gore's current TV, his hybrid technology platform, he says, is not political, is not even ideological, but what it allows is it gives people a platform to share a cornucopia of views and opinions about the world that perhaps without that 
they wouldn't have the opportunity to share or to listen to engage in opposing points of view and therefore perhaps come to a better understanding of the world that we live in. So current TV, one third of its programming is made up by what we call user-generated content. So uh, I may have a particular interest about something that I want to make a 15-minute film about. I can make it. Um, I can load it up onto the internet side of current TV. And then people can watch it. People can say whether they would greenlight this for, for broadcast. You can see how many times it's been viewed. People can comment on it. So you actually start a dialogue about these things. And if it gets onto current TV's cable channel, uh, you get your name in lights and $1,000. So Andy Warhol's 15 Minutes of Fame is something I think has come true, but just not quite in the way that he possibly imagined. Um, and I think that it's, uh, for me, I think current TV is well worth going to have a look at. And it does feel to me in many ways like a gold standard in terms of, of an intelligent way of getting people to kind of participate and co-create uh, in, in a very different type of way. Now I just want to sort of go through some other sort of trends which I think are really important. Um, the first one is we live in an iPod shuffle world. Um, I've got a friend, uh, he lives um, uh, in, on the West Coast, and there was one year that he decided that recently that he would go to Europe with his family, never done it before, and they would travel uh, in a civilised way across Europe on trains. And his kids said to him, you know, Dad, you really should be buying the Harry Potter books because they're fantastic and you should be listening to Harry Potter whilst you're on the train. So he said, well, what I'll do is I'll buy an iPod and I'll load up Harry Potter and I can listen to it as we're sort of travelling and I can, whilst I'm looking out the window. And at the end of the week, he turns around to his wife and his kids and he says, you know what, I've been listening to Harry Potter all week, but I can't work it out. You know, the plot's all over the place, the characters are all over the place. You know where I'm going with this, right? He'd had his iPod on shuffle for the whole week. So the point is, is that actually we live in a world at the moment of digital immigrants <laughs> and digital natives. And Rupert Murdoch, who gave a speech to the American, Newsage, American Newspaper Association of Editors or something along those lines, uh, recently said, he said, I am a digital immigrant. He said, you know, I grew up and I wasn't coddled on a computer or weaned on the web. I grew up in a world where information was highly centralised and controlled by a few proprietors who decided what we could or should know. Whereas today, my children are digital, na digital natives. So what we're witnessing right in front of us is a revolution in the way that kids use and consume media and information. They're not waiting for a newspaper to turn up on their doorstep every morning to tell them what's important. They're not waiting for a godlike figure to tell them actually what they could or should know. And he says to take that God analogy a little bit further, they certainly don't want news and information presented as gospel. Um, and I think that that is actually very true. Um, very quickly, uh, the seventh mass media. Um, <clears throat> Access to information and, and knowledge has been a defining part of civil society. Um, and if we think about it, you know, prior to Gutenberg, the church wanted to control information and knowledge. Reading and writing was kept within the church because that's the way they could control the feudal system. If we were ignorant, then we were actually then sort of pawns at, at their feet. They could control the wealth. They could control everything. 
Um, and it's why I think that the, the, the mobile as a seventh mass media is actually something really worth considering because in today's world, the last two mass media are the mass media which are interactive and two-way and in many ways designed to be anarchic from day one. But if we go through it, Gutenberg invented movable type and released information from the church. Without that, we wouldn't have had the Renaissance. We wouldn't be where we were today if that information wasn't released. The second one is actually recordings, analogue recordings. For the first time, I didn't have to go to a live concert or I didn't have to be a musician myself to play the things I wanted to. I could repeatedly start to listen to these things, but it was still a controlled format. The third mass media was cinema. For the first time, I had a multimedia sensory experience. Um, but in many ways, it was still a controlled distribution model. So fifth mass media is TV. Fourth, sorry, radio. Um, and in, in many ways, uh, again, I think that, you know, uh, particularly I think in the, in, in the US, radio played such an important part in communities before mass media kind of brought it all up and turned it into a, into, into a, a mass media icon. And in many ways, if you think about it, um, you know, local people playing their local music or, you know, whatever to their local communities uh, were important to those local communities. Once they were brought together as a sort of major network, perhaps Elvis Presley would not have existed without a mass media in the, in, in the, in the, in the same way. The fifth is television. But the sixth, as I said, is the first two-way in interactive mass media. And the seventh is mobile. And there's a guy called Herbert Simon who said that... Um, what information consumes is rather obvious. It consumes attention. So when we have an abundance of information, what we have is an poverty of attention. So already we are learning to filter out lots and lots of things which aren't important to us. And our children live in a world of abundance. They don't live in a world of scarcity. My son, you know, he's nine. Um, he expects to be able to launch up his laptop and to have information and knowledge at his fingertips whenever he wants to. Um, I didn't grow up in that world. You know, I used to dream for the two hours on a Sunday afternoon when you know, Joe 90 or Captain Scarlet or kind of whatever it was uh, programs would be on, and the rest of Sunday was completely boring. Whereas people today can go online all the time and can be searching and things. And that's also very important because actually what we're competing for now is people's attention more than anything. And search. Who uses Google? Okay, so uh, if I said tomorrow there is no search, I've banned it for the week, would you be able to do your job? How would you feel? You know, it's even a verb, isn't it, to Google someone. Have you go I'm meeting, I'm meeting so-and-so tomorrow. Have you Googled him? <laughs> so, you know, it's, re it's really important. And I think that Last.fm is a great example of, um, which Last.fm is like Pandora, um, where I can go and I can search for music. And in fact, I love it now. So I was sitting in my hotel today working on my presentation. I got a T1 line and I had Last FF playing and I found it a, fancied a bit of chill-out music. So whilst I was working, I was chilling out. And you sort of, so there's also a way of searching and discovering in a way that we couldn't do before. And there's a rumour, in fact, Ajit's just walked in the room. Hi, Ajit. Ajit's my friend and publisher of the book. We happen to be speaking at MIT on the same day, which is kind of an amazing coincidence. Um, 
There was a rumour, in fact, that obviously search is such a big thing that the mobile telecoms companies were thinking about actually pooling their resources together to create a search engine that would be in competition with Google on a mobile platform. Now, I'm not sure whether that was true or whether that was a rumour, but the reality is I think there's going to be a massive battle for search over the coming years. Those that can help us search better, those can enable us and simplify our lives in lots of ways because we will be searching more. We've learnt to search. We don't wait. I mean, who's used the yellow pages in their house the last time in the last two years? Two, okay. <laughs> Three. Dictionaries. Yeah, yeah, dictionaries, yeah. But I was, I was thinking specifically more about yellow pages in terms of I need to find a pizza place, I need to do whatever it is, a plumber or an electrician or whatever. We, we, we can let, we'll let dictionaries off the hook for the moment, I think, actually. Um, and that all of the web mobile technologies are all about we media in one form or another. They're all about harnessing collective intelligence. They're all about people participating and engaging. It's all about very clear propositions and services for people which other brands aren't delivering in their, in their old legacy mindset. And why are communities important? Why is social networking important? important because actually we converge and coalesce around things which I would call values, not demographics. So we've got the end and demise of demographics. Um, there could be, for example, people that are passionate about certain things in their lives which have got nothing to do with their demographics whatsoever. And it's a completely different way of the way that we think we might build businesses or organisations in the future. And um, this is actually something that I pulled out of Agit's book, Web Mobile 2.0, which is that harnessing collective intelligence for the future and is very much an important part of this new media landscape that we're living in. And we've got to be able to do something meaningful with that data, with that knowledge and information. If we can't harness it and make it work properly, then it has no value. It just flows downstream. And a good example of that... Um, is a life sciences community who actually come together as a peer group um, and they share knowledge and information and research about topics that are of, of real value and interest to them. So the research is dynamic, which I think is a really interesting way of thinking about harnessing collective intelligence. So, again, you know, many people like to talk about user-generated content or sort of, you know, YouTube or whatever, but there's actually something much deeper and far more interesting in all of this than just the kind of things of, of MySpace and YouTube. And that we live in a world of hot media, not a world of cold media. So if we think about it, um, eBay, Amazon, instant messaging, blogs, uh, all of these things are really hot media. They're dynamic, and the media is dynamic. Cold media is one-way broadcast. Its platforms actually are all, all about kind of trying to just push information to people in a way that hopefully that they all respond in some way. Whereas hot media is about engaging people in all sorts of very interesting ways. And a good example of that is World of Warcraft. 6.4 million people. Um, I think there's a half a million people that are playing at, uh, at any one time uh, who subscribe something like, I don't know, $30 a month. And there's community in there, and there's commerce in there, and there's all sorts of things which are great and they're dynamic, appealing to a very particular audience, and it's a very, very successful business model.
And Yochai Benkler, who wrote a book called The Wealth of Networks, said that networked information production and the network social conversations that go on are fundamentally changing the role that the individual can have in the creation of knowledge, culture and information. And the thing is that social networks are sticky in a way that mass media never was. And I think that without being sort of overdramatic, I would say that this change is structural. It goes to the very heart in terms of how our liberal democracies and economies have co-evolved over the last 200 years. And there's a guy called Davy Reed who came up with a theory called Reed's Law. Um, and it goes like this, that the red line at the bottom there is actually called Sarkoff's Law. That's the law of the mass media. So the more cinema screens, the more TV sets, the more billboard space, the more whatever it is, the more eyeballs we get. So the more people that actually can kind of look at this stuff and then the more value there is in that exposure. Metcalf is the yellow line and he says that the more computers connected together there are, then actually the greater the flow of information. But what Reid said was is that when people coalesce around a topic, a problem or an issue as a, an informed and motivated group, the effect is exponential. And that's the green line. So a couple of examples of that. Um, the Elephant's Dream was the world's first open movie project where uh, people from all around the world came together, programmers, designers, writers, uh, etc., etc., to work on the creation of this animated short film called The Elephant's Dream. So like Linux, they would work on the uh, scripts and on the modules of the work, upload it, and then someone else would download it and continue working on that and load it up again. Um, Jamie Oliver. Um, do you know who know Jamie Oliver is? We all know who Jamie Oliver is. Uh, Britain's most famous celebrity chef. And he created a programme called um, Jamie's School Dinners. Uh, at the time in Britain, basically, which I again I think is it just is amazing. We were essentially feeding our kids um, saturated fats, burger and chips, pizzas, uh, nothing healthy. And of course, we all know that diet is really important to people when they're wanting to be athletes or when they're learning. So it kind of makes sense, you know. You've got to kind of feed the brain for it to work better. But of course, big businesses had got into supplying all the uh, food. They kept driving down the cost, kept saying, we were just responding to the marketplace. This is what the kids want. So Jamie created this project where he went into a school and then he went into more schools where he started to create new uh, menus for the kids. And yes, there was a lot of resistance and it was extremely interesting TV programming. But the great thing was is that Jamie created a site called Feed Me Better. And in that, he created a forum where people could come and talk about uh, the issues around food and education. And what Jamie did in the end was start a petition. Over 300,000 signatures were delivered by Jamie to Tony Blair in government. Um, there was an absolutely mass media news sensation around it. And he forced the government to change their policy in the way that we feed our kids in schools. Um, and uh, one from China is a thing called Twango, I think it is, and it means team buy. So people come together uh, and they sort of say, I'm really interested in buying this type of car. How many people in the community want to buy this type of car? And sort of 10,000 people put their hands up and go, we'd like to buy that type of car. And then they turn up at the dealership, um, quite a few of them, and they say, this is who we are. We want to buy that car for that price. No negotiation. Thank you very much. Um, and so <laughs> it's an incredible phenomenon. Group forming network theory. 
The BBC understand that actually they're no longer a broadcaster, but they've got to work as a network facilitator. Um, Ashley Highfield, in fact, says that at the, he's the head of interactive media at the BBC, and he says that at the very end of the spectrum, we have gone from sort of monologue broadcasting to this sort of idea of user-generated content People's views, knowledge and information is combining with the existing sort of content manufactured out there by the various other production companies. But they understand that we, could, we live in a world where we time shift, where we want to kind of curate our consumption in completely different ways. Um, and I think the BBC understand that better than most people. Um, and The Guardian is another really good example. The Guardian's a newspaper. It's building its global brand as a trusted news source. And I saw this ad in a newspaper, and I thought, this is fascinating. Um, guardianabroad.co.uk. So people that live an expat life, um, an expatriate life, um, in all four corners of the globe can start to read and consume information about what it's like to lead an expat life in particular countries. The information is served up in completely different ways. So I would say this is going back to the idea about brands or businesses being life-enabling, life-simplifying or navigational. If I'm an expat, this will be very useful to me. And um, when I was a kid, um, we only had one camera in the house and I was never allowed to use it because I wasn't professional enough. Um, and what we live in today now is the world of the professional amateur. People which have hobbies which they are um, working on and delivering work to very high standards of uh, production. And this is a, an image of a lady um, called Rebecca. She's Icelandic. She lives in Iceland somewhere. And she's been posting her images on Flickr for the last four years. Um, her work, I think, is absolutely stunning. Um, so much so that, in fact, Toyota and a big fashion brand hired her because they thought her work was so great. So, again, we see this kind of collapse between sort of consumer and producer. Um, and that's something that we see within the, the television media world, that some people just can't get their heads around the fact that someone can hold a camera up, shoot something for five minutes, and it will be good as if a professional cameraman did it. I'm not saying that we don't have professional people, but we are used to, and back to psychological self-determination, wanting to do these things in the way that we want to, if we feel we want to do it. Um, HBO designs all its websites around social interaction. Um, why does it do that? Because on the back end, it has a very sophisticated reporting system, and it can uh, find out the 64 most influential people that talk about The Sopranos. Now, again, I personally aren't interested in sort of going on to The Sopranos and talking about the plot narrative development, but we know, in terms of fan fiction, there are a lot of people that really, really do. Um, and this sort of relates to a thing called... Alphas, alpha users. Um, alpha users are the most connecting and connecting person within any community. And it doesn't matter whether it's a seven-year-old uh, boys kind of baseball club or whether it's the sort of 82-year-old's bridge plan club. Within that community, there will be an alpha user. And that is very important in actually getting people to uptake stuff. So, in fact, this is a model of um, uh, an American school. And the thing is, is that within there... There is an alpha user. But the thing is, you don't really want to be influencing these people on the sort of bottom left-hand side here because actually your influence is not going to go very far very quickly. So data starts to become very important and how we use data um, and how we start to sort of think very carefully about, you know, 
what goes into the machine in some respects or the, you know, the organisation, what could come out the other way that can help us socially think very differently in the way that we perhaps do our things? And I would say that the language of our postmodern culture is one about collaboration. It's about trust, transparency, authenticity, uh, co-creation, peer production. If you think about this girl being sort of held aloft uh, on this crowd, uh, you know, some people are playing a more major role in the creation of that experience for her, and others aren't. Others, it's just a fleeting glimpse. But what we know is, is that when that girl gets down from that experience, and maybe she's travelled, I don't know, 50 feet or something, she'll go home with a very deep emotional experience of being in that concert. And so I would say that if organisations spent the 20th century managing efficiencies, they've got to manage the 21st century managing experiences. How do we create great experiences for people? Um, there's a guy again, sort of back to uh, out my Bill Bailey. Um, I like to listen to comedy. And uh, Bill was asked once about how he came up with his jokes. And he said, well, you know, I start with a laugh and I work backwards. And in many ways, you know, when we think about the things that we create in today's world, we have to think it first from the user experience perspective and not from perhaps, you know, uh, the technology perspective or from a worldview where we are going to drive things, where we think other people should be having these things. What is it we are going to create that people want to be part of? And communication, I'm a great believer in the power of communication, but actually what's the etymology of the word communication? What's the root word of that? And that word is communion. It's about coming together, sharing together, and transcending together. And if we think about communities and social networking, we think about engagement, um, we want people to be able to commune around things in ways which they freely will choose to do so. And I kind of thought about this when I was kind of looking at the Apple Store. You know, I kind of thought, what is the Apple Store? Um, you know, I, I go to the Apple Store in the UK, but I also go to the Apple Stores in the US, and I just see the same type of behaviour. And I thought, well, is the Apple Store a retail store? Or is it actually an advert? Is it a customer relationship marketing? Is it a place to learn more about my Mac? Do I get, is it a place to get my Mac fixed? Is it a place to meet like-minded people? The reality is it's all those things. And so I'm very happy to go and worship uh, and commune at the Temple of Apple. Um, I know that we're a kind of a, you know, we're a niche community. Um, but I do think it's really interesting, and what they've created here is a great experience. Um, and if we think about the Apple iPhone, um, I know it's not 3G, but it certainly is designed, I think, from day one around the user experience and interaction rather than the technology. And if Martin Luther King, um, all those years ago, stood up and said, I have a five-year plan rather than I have a dream, would those people have followed him? Um, so in our book, we talk about the four Cs, connectivity, culture, commerce, and community. Now, when we wrote the book, we were really thinking about marketing purely as a kind of business enterprise and exercise. I think subsequently over the last sort of year or so of working, I've become far more interested also in the implications in terms of education and politics and, and these things in terms of engagement and how can we create better experiences for people. But very quickly, um, what we see is, is that uh, Robbie Williams plays a gig to 7,500 people in uh, Germany, um, but then another 10,000 people watch that in cinemas, simulcast around Germany, but another 100,000 people watch it on their mobile phones. 
Uh, Weigh-in is a uh, website where I can sort of uh, load up my profile. It's a travelling website. I can kind of share my data information with people. Um, people can send me recommendations of what I should be doing. So we're sort of sharing things and creating value in very different ways. Um, and I like is something, again, which is, again, this whole idea about discovering and sharing music and information. Commerce and community. Well, Current TV, funnily enough, is a very successful business model. Oh My News, um, the first citizen journalist news portal in Korea, now has over 60,000 people writing for it. Um, Imogen Heap is an artist. She has a, a, a Mo blog, so her fans can actually sort of send in their pictures and their stories about Imogen playing it all over the place. But on the other hand, um, you can also buy stuff on Imogen's site, but if I'm passionate about that, I'm very happy to do so. Um, Widsets is uh, a great thing which you should look into if you haven't done already. It completely changes the mobile experience in terms of searching for um, things that are relevant and of interest to you. Um, and when you put the four of them together, um, these are some great examples. So we talked about Pop Idol. Um, I see you smiling in the front there. Do you know who this is? That's right. So 400 million people voted yeah. for her, and her song was downloaded a billion times, apparently. And what we see is in, um, and in fact, we, we've written a white paper about Pop Idol, and obviously Henry talks about Pop Idol. And I just think, again, it's this, it's, it goes to the very heart of what this is all about. It's about extended narrative. It's about what Henry calls transmedia storytelling in some respects, I think. It's about people feeling that they can be part of the experience and co-create that. It's also the idea that one day I'm a guy in a, in a shop stacking boxes or a postman, the next I can actually be standing on a stage and I can be fulfilling my destiny if I want to. Um, Cyworld is a Korean game. Um, it's uh, got 90% of the entire Korean teenage population are members of Cyworld, and 30% of the entire Korean population belong to Cyworld. I think those statistics are right, Ajit, are they? Yeah. Um, the amazing thing is, is that it's owned by SK Telecom. So, and mobile is a fundamental part of the Cyworld experience. Want people to sort of use data? Um, want to use their mobile phones in different ways, create something that is really going to engage them. And Juiced is something that's just been launched by Nicholas Zenstrom, who created Skype and Kazaa. And so basically this is a, a platform where you can start to create your own channels on the internet, stuff that's already out there. Um, and again, the thing that was interesting for me was on this slide was that I can actually instant, instant message people. I can be on forums. I can be rating these things as it's playing. So media has become far more interactive and social. And in terms of business models, there's a guy called Lukas Gadovici. Um, he's based in Germany, and he created a company called Spreadshirt.com. So basically, I can create my own sh my shop online. It's called alanmoreshop.com. Um, and I designed these incredible T-shirts. In fact, this gentleman in the front is wearing one of those uh, at the moment. Um, and I sell those for $100 a pop because people think they're fantastic. 
What Spreadshirt do is um, they will print it, minimum quantity one, they will distribute it and they will deal with the financial transactions for me and they have over 300 vendors around the world which they built in under four years without any VC backing or marketing spend because they did it through social networking, they did it through reputation, this idea that people wanted to say something about themselves. Lucas says, we didn't build Spreadshirt, the community built Spreadshirt. Um, and here again are some more examples. Um, and it's well worth going to have a look at. They're not the only one. It's just that I happened to meet Lucas and I was very interested in his story. My Numo is exactly the same as Spreadshirt, but it's done with on a mobile platform. Um, and then just towards the end, I'm no expert on this um, by any stretch of the imagination, other than the fact I feel very passionately about it. Um, I couldn't read until I was 10. Uh, in fact, uh, my school said I was educationally subnormal. And uh, the reality was is that I had some form of dyslexia, um, which made learning for me very difficult. Um, I remember I started learning to read by reading these sort of small war comics. And then I sort of graduated onto full-blown war novels. And I remember my mother saying to my father, you know, it's full of sex and violence. How could you let this boy read this stuff? And he turned around to me and he said, the boy's reading. What do you want? Um, and uh, all my kids are dyslexic. Um, this is Richard on the left. Um, he's 24 now, but I like that picture of him because he looks so cute. Um, and, um, and this is my daughter, Emma. She's 17 and a half. Um, Richard is a victim of what we call in England the state education system. Okay? Um, I would go to uh, the primary school when he was a young boy and we would just say, Richard's very naughty. He doesn't sit still. He doesn't do his work. But the boy had an incredibly high IQ. Why? Because he was depressed and frustrated about the fact that he saw other kids learning. He couldn't and that frustrated him. But equally being told that he was a naughty boy. And it took us many years to rebuild his self-esteem. And it's one of the things that breaks my heart when I see children broken by an education system that will not shape itself to their needs and wants. Emma goes to a private school, as does my son Joseph, um, at great expense to us. But I don't think I have a choice. I'm compelled as a parent to want to give my child the very best opportunity I can. And I can't bring myself to see another Richard being taken into the world who could have brought so much value. And he is a lovely boy and he's a good kid now. Um, but it was awful, and it was awful to watch him suffer. And this is my son, Joe. Um, he's on the beach here in Santa Barbara with Charlie, his favourite dog. Um, and again, he's at a special school, so he's in class sizes of around five, and he's going to be there for about another year or so before we think we've got him on the road to being able to deal with uh, a bigger mainstream school. But Joe said to me the other day, he said, you know what, Dad, I can spell the word loading. And I said, can you, Joe? He said, yeah, it's L-O-A-D-I-N-G. I went, that's great. But then he said, but what are the three dots which keep coming after the word loading? Well, Joe's learning to read in a completely different way. That's not to say we don't read books to him, because we read loads of books to him, yeah? But the fact is, is that Joe learned to navigate and read a map by playing Grand Theft Auto. Um, and again, you know, I took the view of it's full of sex and violence, but the boy's learning to read. It's just that he's doing it in a way which is relevant to his life. Um, and that kind of got me thinking, you know, because Joe then was really into a game called Aragon. Um, 
And he kept running into the kitchen. He said, Dad, Adam, what's this word say? What's this word? Come and see what this word says. Come and see what this word says. You know, and I'm kind of going, well, why can't gaming be such a, a, an important part of education? Why can't we create things? And Joe's teacher actually said to me, when a child doesn't get it in our school, it's not the child's fault. It's the teacher's fault because they haven't yet worked out how to educate the child. Or how to get, sorry, how to, how to create the context in a way that that child can see meaning in the way they're going to learn. So, you know, what I'm saying here is, is that, you know, if some of you are working on gaming and education, I would implore you to double your efforts because there are a lot of people out there that really need your skills and capability. Um, and so at that point, I think there could be a chance for every child. I do see things going on. There's a thing called the Education Podcast Network. But why isn't there a way where we could use mobile technologies? Why is it? I'm standing here boring the pants off you now, because I know I've spoken for far too long. But why is it that you couldn't have it as a podcast? Why couldn't you download it as, a, as an RSS feed to your mobile phone? If I'm having trouble with long division, why can't I have that digitally recorded and be able to watch it again and again and again? Because I need to see that 150 times before I understand it. Whereas as the other kid to the left of me gets it once. That's the chance for every child. Um, we have an e-petitions now in the UK. That's very interesting. So I'm part of an e-petition where we're petitioning the government. Uh, very interesting, actually, because they did this uh, review about education. So a school, for example, a normal school will have about £4,000 to spend on a child's special educational needs. Um, about 10% of all kids in any classroom in the state system has some form of special needs education, right? At £4,000, $8,000 isn't going to go very far, right? Um, so the government, government commissioned a report, and then they just sort of conveniently forget it, because actually that's going to cost them far too much money. And so I've signed a, a petition. Anyway, um, summing up, I think that... Um, you know, the creative challenge is to create things that people want to engage with, they want to be part of, that they can co-create, that they want to share and tell their friends about. Thank you very much. You had a question. Yeah, and actually for the first one, go ahead and just answer the question. If you don't mind repeating, I'm going to stick a new battery in the mic. Um, earlier in your talk, you were talking about um, this new word to like psychological Yeah. Although I think that if you look at 
things like World of Warcraft, for example, you know, you've got guilds now which are kind of forming where people are actually starting to sort of want to collaborate and work with each other in completely different ways. Um, I think that um, this whole notion about self-expression is something that I see very much. Um, you know, we see, uh, for example, if you look at young people's uh, approach to authority, um, is a real issue we have in, in England, um, in classrooms. Uh, I look at, again, I look at Emma, my daughter, and you know, she stands her ground in a way that I don't think I probably would have done at her age. Um, so I think that you know, it's a macro trend that I look at, and obviously underneath that you'll see all sorts of things going on, but I think the reality is we can point to these things and say this is a general trend, is something which is happening in a way that if I look back 20 years ago, certainly wouldn't have happened. I mean, you know, my parents were wartime educated. Um, they came from poor families. Um, my, my mother's view was is that a good job for me would, have, would be being a plumber or a bricklayer or, you know, doing something like that. When I stood up and said, I'm going to college and I want to be creative, you know, we had huge fights about that. You know, do, do you have to... And I said, I have the right to want to do that because I had the right to be who I wanted to be. My parents didn't have the right to be what they wanted to be because of economics and lots of different ways. That's the point, I think. And then we see things happening as a consequence of that. In your uh, discussion about cold media and hot media, hot media. Uh, you said that hot media was interactive and engaging and that uh, social media is sticking in ways that old media never was. Don't you uh, make an exception for books? I mean, it's cold media, but uh, in terms of stickiness, I don't know what media comes close. I think that uh, in, in, in this we're talking about, um, I think books are engaging. In fact, I mean, I read uh, the, the, the book about this uh, Somali woman um, uh, from cover to cover over the last uh, 48 hours, and I love books. Um, but the reality is I think young children don't read books quite as much as they used to. Um, and I think uh, hot media is very much about a two-way flow of communication from almost day one. So I, I personally, as a digital immigrant, uh, still love to read books. And I think books are very important in terms of containers of ideas. Um, I think in, an engagement way of doing that, though, would be then to perhaps go to a book club um, or to discuss that online as a forum about what does that mean to you. Um, it's really interesting, the book I read called Infidel, which is all about a woman's experience of Islam and what, how she felt about that Islamic, Islamic culture in, or the Quran in its kind of purest sense was actually uh, very misogynistic. Um, and I think that that you know, is something that I would be really interested then to go and debate with other people and to take that idea into a, into a forum because I'd like to hear other people's points of view and share their ideas. So that would be my answer to that, I think. I actually have a, I'll have a question about the Internet's impact on crisis management of, the, of a company. So you also mentioned that um, companies today have to manage um, users' experience. But it's kind of hard for a company to please every consumer. And you know, in the past, um, crisis always uh, came from traditional mass media. So it's kind of um, easy for a company to deal with such kind of crisis because you know the information uh, mm -hmm. source. But nowadays, I, I feel that crisis 
begin to come from internet, from the blogs, from the those social networks. So, how to how deal do do with? That? Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a really good question, and I think that uh, what I would say is is that <coughs> the crisis comes from the blogs because actually the blogs give people a voice, and uh, and the great example of that is in fact kryptonite. Do you know the kryptonite story? So kryptonite are locks which are D-locks, which say we are the safest locks in the world, okay? So you've got a bike that's worth anything, you lock it with a kryptonite lock, apparently. So I think in 2004, uh, there was a small film released on the internet by Engadget.com, and it showed actually that you could undo uh, the D-lock with the tip of a big ballpoint pen, right? Um, and... Um, the scale, and this is the incredible thing about living in a, in a connected world which has no boundaries to it, that information just spread like wildfire. So you can imagine it. I mean, well, if I'm, if, so I'm, I'm on a special interest group about certain types of bikes or whatever, and I'm reading this, and my $20,000 bike now or my $5,000 bike, actually, it's locked out outside, <laughs> and I know that someone can come along and steal it at any moment. I'm pretty pissed off, yeah? So... Of course, then, the forums start to erupt about the conversations about all of this. But, of course, then the retailers get upset because actually now customers are going and saying, I want my money back. Now, Kryptonite didn't know how to respond to that. And they nearly went bust in uh, six weeks. Um, and that's the story of if you don't listen and if you don't engage... Um, and what they should have done was is they should have actually set up a blog from day one and said, you know, okay, we understand that this is an issue. Um, these are the things we're going to. We, these are the things we're going to do, and you have to engage with that debate, uh, whether you like it or not. Um, a very personal experience of ours was my co-author Tommy. Um, he's the stats man. He's the numbers guy. Okay, um, and um, he likes his numbers. So he'd been watching what had been happening with the iPod for a while, and we'd seen for the last two quarters that the um, iPod sales were dropping off. And so Tommy had written a number of posts, but the last one was called The Demise of the Darling iPod. And we normally get about, I don't know, 600 people a day coming to read our blog, okay? We got 4,500 people in an afternoon, and then we got another 4,500 to 5,000 the day after, and the day after, and the comments started to come you know, from the Apple community, which I can tell you, negative advocacy is not a great experience when you're on the receiving end of it. But I picked up the phone to Tommy and I said to Tommy, right, you've got a choice. I said, you've written the post, so you're the one that's going to answer all these things. Um, and some of it was pretty rude and pretty horrible and not very pleasant. And you could have dismissed these, dismissed these people as idiots. But we had to treat them as a community. And, uh, and I said to Tommy, you have to respond to each and every one of these people as a sane human being. And the debates went on for weeks. And sometimes there would be a little kind of comment that Tommy makes. Other times there would be, you know, more than the post he'd wrote, written in the first place. But in the end, what came out of that was is that Tommy stood his ground. He argued with everybody, his point. Um, and he, they, the, the Apple community, in the end, had a very grudging respect for the fact that Tommy Ahanov might have a point of view and wasn't just out there to kill Apple or as an Apple basher. You know, and he would say, I think, that the, I think the iPod is a fantastic piece of equipment. It's the best MP3 player, perhaps, on the market at the moment. But the reality is we know that there are already more full-length songs sold on uh, mobile phones, MP3 mobile phone-enabled phones, globally than there are sold on iTunes. 
So, you know, that's the reality. What he was talking about was a big trend. So I think that the, 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 the people want to have a voice. Um, I think that if you look at, for example, Jamie Oliver getting people to actually coalesce around, you know, the campaign to feed kids better in schools, um, you know, he forced the government actually into changing their policy around those things. There was a serious piece of crisis that kind of went with that as well. So you've got to be able to use blogs and social media. You can't ignore it. You've got to move that into being part of your PR stream and to have a discussion. It was interesting, I think, with Dell, for example. So Jeff Jarvis, you know, has been kind of giving Dell a really hard time for quite, for quite some time. And eventually Dell's realised that it's got to engage with the debate. So it's actually sort of asked its customers for the first time, what would you like on a Dell computer? So the vast majority said Linux. Uh, which obviously pissed off Microsoft. <laughs> um, but they're now starting to listen. Ajit. No. Okay, so, so, but then, you know, they also said, you know, what the other thing we don't want is what we call crapware. Because the way that Dell makes some of its money is it ships a load of stuff that people have paid on it. So one guy said, I'd happily pay $60 not to have that crap on my computer. So, you know, there's all sorts of ways of managing crises. But it's got to be, and if you think about it, why is diplomacy such an important part of our state's system? Because we understand that talking and resolving critical problems through dialogue ultimately is more important than getting your gun out and trying to kill the other person because we know that spirals out of control and then we have no control left. Yeah. Make it easy. <laughs> no, uh, actually, it is easy. It's not. It's not a question. I'm just complimenting uh, the the previous question about books, uh, and as the publisher, specifically Alan's books publisher, I can. I, I've given a lot of thought about what books are about, and I spoke at MIT Sloan this afternoon, and we had a very similar question in that in that way. The issue is, I think books are becoming more towards free and more towards reference. Uh, by that, I mean uh, something like communities dominant brands is something you want to go back to again and again. So it becomes like a reference book where the information otherwise is, is almost tending to free. I would say most books uh, get outdated very fast, including my own book, which I think is about six months old, and I think it's fast getting outdated. So it's clearly um, the answer to that question is um, books will have a role, uh, but that role will become uh, smaller, um, and it will be only when you want to come back to it. Otherwise, information is too difficult to, to keep fresh in that medium. I mean, the, I mean, for us, I suppose, in a way, we've complemented the book with the blog. Yeah, and, and I think most authors will have to do that. Yeah. I mean, Jokai Benkler, for example, The Wealth of Networks, which I suggest is well worth a read, you can download it for free, the whole book, off, off the internet. But it's 427 pages, and you can decide whether you, know, you want to print the whole lot out or not. But I agree with that, yeah. Well, um, hi. So I'm sitting here agreeing with almost everything you're saying, and toward the very end, you say something that brings me up short, which is that, you know, we could be all listening to this in a podcast, and it immediately occurs to me, no, you know, if Henry said there's this interesting guy and, and download the podcast, I might never get around to it, that there is something about the fact that you're here, that you made the effort to come, that makes me come and listen. And my only point in saying that is that I think what we haven't fully worked into our formulation is the role of embodiment. The degree to which being in, in a real place, in a real world with real people is also part of the formula. I mean, I think we are, we are more and more aware of the ways in which our connectedness over the wires uh, 
um, is changing things, but we haven't yet factored in exactly what the role of our physical self is in that world. I, no, I agree with you, and I think it's a very good point, and I would say that my presentation, I suppose, in a way, is, is vastly more to do with <coughs> digital impacts than anything else, but uh, I suppose, you know, I did put in the, uh, you know, the Apple Store as an example of a physical embodiment of what perhaps the experience might look like when I talk about the managing of, you know, efficiencies versus experience. Um, the other thing, actually, I was in Louisville, um, as I say, for a few days, and there's a museum there, a very wealthy guy has opened up. It deals with military history. And um, in the middle of the museum uh, is a kind of big wooden sort of area with sort of wooden sides on it. And they have all sorts of people come in there and present to the audience uh, various bits about sort of, you know, fighting with weapons or whatever. And the guy said, would you like to come and see one? And I went, yeah, okay, well, I can go and have a look. So there were two guys, and basically they were talking about the evolution of swords, weapons, and sword fighting through, the, through actually Romeo and Juliet. And I watched these little kids, which were, you know, sort of this age, you know, watching this thing, some a bit older, but they were all transfixed. But again, what they brought was context and meaning to the experience. And I think that all of those, even if, so if they're at school, and I think even a couple of years later, and they're going to say, we're going to do Romeo and Juliet, they'll go, oh, that'd be interesting. Because somehow they will remember the, the emotional, physical experience of watching these guys do it, and they did it in a very entertaining, funny way. So I think I completely agree with you. But I think that the, for example, um, you know, we're working on a project at the moment where you know, we want to be able to combine these kind of digital communities with real-life experiences. And it's actually the combining of the two and flowing those things backwards and forwards. So it's not that one negates the other, but it's a way of actually really driving those things in, in, in completely different ways, I think, which is important. I just want to go back to the to the book issue, and then I'll let it go. So. Sure, okay. But um, I, I think about Henry's chapter in his book on why Heather can read, and I think about... On why what, sorry? Heather can read, and right. I think about the Harry Potter phenomenon. Oh, yeah, yeah. And these kids aren't just engaging with this material, they're engaging with these physical books. And I've been in three different countries in the last 12 months or so. Mm -hmm. And each country I've been to, kids don't just want to read the story. They want to buy these books. They want to own these books, and they want it on their shelves and in their collection, and they want to feel it and read it and share it. And, um, and so I just wonder, um, we do have a generation of kids coming up who are digital natives, as you say, but they also aren't being offered any other options. So I just wonder, I mean, we give them a whole lot of credit for engaging with this technology and becoming sort of expert in, in its use. But um, I think about Hollywood, they're no longer in the business of making films. They're just producing content that they can sell across a multiple number of platforms. And, um, but if they re-engage with making films, I'd be happy to go back to the theater right. you know, to watch. Well, if they make good films. If they made good films. And, and, and that, I think, can apply to a number of different, different media. Harry Potter for Kids is a great book. And I haven't read them, so I couldn't really comment. They are great. Well, I've read them so many times. So I, I just wonder, I mean, we talk about this sort of, I, I'm, I'm just a little skeptical of, of, of sort of putting all of this responsibility in because, oh, they're the digital natives and they understand all of this, and, um, and they, but they don't also have other options. And I don't know if that is talking about well, that Well, I would say that, you know, if Gutenberg well. was alive today, he would be a blogger and a vlogger 
and as well as a, sure. uh, a you know a ham a ham bound print binder whatever you know he would use all the tools at his disposal i think that my my the thrust of my argument is is that you know um we have to um you know our children live in terms of education in a multi-century world and i think that we deny them that opportunity in in in, in the education that they have um and i think that you know, there's a guy called uh, Ken Robinson, who's a fantastic uh, speaker. But you know, basically, you know, he says that as schools fail, for example, they cut out all the things that are really important. You know, so for example, to learn music means you've got to learn to read, you've got to learn to count. You know, you, it's not just about playing a musical instrument in a completely different way. Um, a great engagement in marketing initiative was uh, a guy that went into a failing school, they gave these kids in musical instruments um, and they said that you can choose any instrument you like um, and the deal is you learn to play as a class. And that was for me really interesting because they succeeded and failed together as a group of people rather than actually going off and worrying about whether their mates down the road were going to laugh at them and whether when they finally stood up in front of class they were going to get the notes all wrong. Yeah? Um, and that's one of the great things about teams. If you play a lot of team sport, you fail and succeed together. And that creates a much tighter bond as a consequence of that. Um, and so within that school, you know, antisocial behaviour went down. Um, you, know, um, uh, uh, you know, homework done on time went up. Also, sort of, sorry, I'll just use that as a, as a slight aside. But um, we have to bring those multi-century tools in, in, into play. Um, and that's the point. And I think then, if, if you do that, there's a greater opportunity that, that kids will want to go back and read the book uh, and all the rest of it. But, you know, I see none of my kids, maybe because they're dyslexic, but none of my kids really like reading, whereas I love reading, you know. But I've grew, I grew up with newspapers. I used to love to sit in there reading newspapers, and I still do. I like the printed word. I mean, to be honest with you, if I'm going to read anything at great length, I prefer to have it on a printed page and not on the other one. But, as Ajit said, I think... You know, what's really helped us succeed in terms of our business and what we've done with the book is it's the book and it's the blog. And it's the fact that we've continued to write. And in a way, the blog is my research tool for the next part of the process. And so I think that, you know, um, sort of risk of repeating myself, but we, 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 we find ourselves in a very different type of world in, in lots of ways. And I think there are just great opportunities. Um, you know, to help kids kind of learn and to experience life and to see the world in ways perhaps they couldn't have done, you know, without these technological, technological capabilities as a consequence of that. I guess I'm curious on your take on this sort of amusing ourselves to death problem. And, um, I mean, the more people are gravitating away from newspapers or, you know, traditional institutions, I mean, it, they're disconnected from people with real power making decisions over their lives and, and you know, sort of just splitting off from... Well, I mean, I think if you go back and look at, you know, what Barack Obama's trying to do, he's trying to address that. He's trying to understand that there are all sorts of different ways to create information. But in a way, you think about that the last slide, I mean, you know, what he's using that platform as a conduit for online and offline. Um, and actually one of the conversations that we were having today was, you know, why is it that people don't vote? Why is it people are disengaged with politics? Um, well, I think a large part of it is because actually governments in the old days 
didn't want us to be particularly knowledgeable about it because actually what we wanted was a, was a dumbass population that was going to build the GDP of this country and Great Britain with their muscle and their sweat in the manufacturing plants down the mines, in the steel yards, yeah? But the reality is today, and this is why I feel so passionate about it, is the, for the US and for the UK and Europe, we will build our GDPs in the future out of our creativity and our knowledge capability. And so therefore, we need to get people to re-engage with these things, and very, very quickly. And that's why we can't leave any child behind because each and every one of them will count in a way that didn't count before, because you didn't need to have a brain to shuffle coal. You know what I mean? And people quite like the idea of the fact that you had a bit of a dumb, a dumb mass of people, because they're so much easier to herd, you know? And as soon as you have a very highly intelligent and mobile population, that becomes like herding cats, and that's a real nightmare for politicians and governments. But that's the reality of, you know, otherwise, you know, you look at what China's doing, and if you look at what, you know, the rest of the world is doing, we can't compete as a manufacturing um, uh, entity any longer. And that puts massive cha challenges, I think, on the social structures, educational needs, uh, and ep economics and political structure of the, of the country. One of the things we stress in the program has been recognizing that theory gets produced outside of the academy, that it gets produced in a variety of other sectors. And I think students probably listening to you see someone who is a theorist both consumes and produces theory at a fairly high level. So I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about how that theory production connects to your role in the marketing process. Okay. Um, <clears throat> well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> the funny thing is, is I am a, uh, I am a creative person. My, my life was spent sort of working uh, in various advertising agencies, um, creating ads and stuff. So in a way, I'm, I'm, I'm very compelled to want to to make these things happen. Um, we advise um, Nokia um, on a number of uh, different projects. Um, I'm hoping that we're going to do a project with them um, where we're going to use the Nokia N93 as a means to actually record interviews with people because then actually the reality is, is that it's no longer a mobile uh, device that happens to have a video camera. It's actually a video camera that happens to have a mobile device, and there's something that we're working on that. Um, we've done some really big projects with Nokia in terms of what we call engagement marketing, um, and that's about taking that theory and going, well, you know, how does that man manifest itself in real life? So what we start to do then is we start to create creative propositions uh, uh, which you know, are looking at how humans will interact, how we're going to change people's behavior around technology. Um, and we put that and build that together as a proper program. We bring in then teams of people which are, you know, technologists, mobile people, media people, writers, designers. Um, what I'm very interested in is bringing different skill sets of people together to actually really solve those problems. Um, and then the kind of theory kind of gets left at the door um, because if I go in and talk to, you know, um, some of my clients, <laughs> um, they would, like I, I have done today, then I think I was completely bonkers. So um, what you would do then is, um, you know, you, you, you just have to you manifest itself in a creative form. Um, is that a TV program? Um, we're creating a project at the moment where we're looking at niche mass communities of interest where we can see that we can better enable these people 
who have different types of passions and interests which might be within the uh, climbing community, equine community, wine community, um, to actually come, to come together. Because we believe that markets are three things. They actually are built around commerce, uh, knowledge and information exchange and entertainment. So in the old days when we used to go to market, um, we would go to market for those three things. It's just that the mass media doesn't want us to kind of do those things together. So we want to create a new opportunity to do those things. So we're talking to uh, internet companies, um, people like sort of current TV that can deliver the sort of video uh, element to it, um, uh, mobile, um, events companies, um, where we can kind of reach out and start to construct experiences for people which will be of real value to them and putting it into practice. Are we done? Oh. <laughs> In the research that you've been doing, what you just yeah. spoke about, yeah. are you discovering that more people are spending um, their attention on fewer properties, like fewer things, but just spending going deeper into those things, or investing that same attention more shallowly across a greater number of? Um, I, I think that um, we've got a, we've got a saying that you know, if you're into something, why not get more of it? And I think in today's world, you can get a lot more of what you want. I mean, in terms of uh, uh, World of Warcraft, we know that uh, a Finnish lady divorced her husband because, um, you know, he spent far too much time <laughs> doing one thing too often. Um, so, yeah, some, I mean, I think, again, it's a, you know, some people who are, are driven by real needs and desires will, will invest a huge amount of time in things. Or it becomes actually very time frame sensitive. So let's say I'm in the market for, uh, I don't know, a new car or a new house or something. I could then invest an enormous amount of time for a couple of months researching information about, you know, the types of houses or cars or whatever I wanted to buy. Um, I belong to Forum Oxford, which is actually a kind of uh, debating society about actually mobile phone technology um, and sort of Web 2.0, uh, which... I think, you know, if you're interested, it's worth belonging to. I'm more of an observer on that because I'm just interested in picking up the topicality. Um, and then if I'm really interested in getting... I mean, some of these guys just, like, really go at it. And, but there are so many acronyms in there. I mean, I, you know, you can't... You just wouldn't know where to start sometimes. But they start to debate things about things like the iPhone and Google and sort of bigger issues. And then sometimes that prompts me to want to go away and research that in a little bit more depth. So... I kind of suppose I do a sort of little bit of scanning, my, you know, I these, and then I kind of feel things which I think are really interesting, and then I might want to really go and research that in depth and spend a lot of time in that, and other things I'll just kind of reject. So, um, you know, it's a sort of, it's a mixture of, but I think definitely, you know, if you really come across something that, that can provide real value to you, then you're about to spend more time and effort in doing it. It's also, though, a generational thing. So my daughter's now on Facebook. She's not on MySpace. Yeah? Rites of passage. All of the interactive activity you were talking about taking place in this digital universe is uh, on an Internet that uh, connects to the world maybe only somewhere around 85% or higher are not connected. Uh, web.3, Web.4, whatever it is, say when half the world is connected or 75% of the world connected. Uh, won't these systems become overwhelmed? Um, 
And is there a possibility that we're ever going to get to that and eliminate or downgrade the digital divide? Um, okay, so your point is about the overload of information? Well, and, or the world you described is taking place where maybe 10 to 15 percent of the world is connected. Yeah. And you can say that that's basically a community of elites. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's a, I think that's a, that's a fair uh, observation in the world that we're at today. I would, I would, I would want it to be a, a wider opportunity, and I think it will grow wider as we're seeing more and more broadband penetration, um, you know, increasing in the UK and elsewhere. I also mentioned mobile, and mobile is a very important part of this, and everybody has a mobile phone, uh, nearly um, huge proportion of the planet. Uh, Nokia, for example, have one billion phones. Um, in fact, there are more phones in the world than there are TV sets. There's 2.6 billion phones in the world. Um, and that will continue to grow. And I think the mobile, and I don't know where that will go yet, but I think it will play an important role in matching some of this. On the other hand, I mean, for example, and I don't know where it's at now, but I was very interested that in Philadelphia, the mayor in Philadelphia wanted to provide um, Internet access for the entire municipality um, and actually the telecoms companies were up in arms about it because they were saying you know how dare you do this and the mayor was saying because I don't want to have a digital divide you know you had the digital haves and the digital have-nots um, that's not something you know I can do a huge amount of bow I, I, I suppose in a way ultimately I feel the cup is half full rather than half empty and to sort of say that there are all sorts of things that we can do within education and within politics and within business and media that could help enable us all to sort of live slightly better lives. Um, but it's also down to politicians to want to be able to sort of match that gap in terms of the haves and the have-nots. And I think obviously in America that exists and we have it in the UK as well. Um, you know, too many people live under the, the poverty line. You kind of wonder how does that ever happen? Um, and it's a terrible shame. Um, but um, that's my answer to you in, in the best way I can, because I think there's no definitive answer to that, other than I think it's a terrible shame that it exists in the first place. Well, thank you very much, Ray. Very